I've uh, titled this message, I'm looking for a book to prop up my iPad, which is drifting down the pulpit slowly. I've titled this message, The Right Way to Read the Bible, sort of, uh, you know, slight bravado over that, but um, hopefully you'll hear it for what it is, which is my genuine conviction that there is a wrong way to read the Bible, many wrong ways, and some, and some really helpful right ways to read the Bible. Well, let's start with a quiz. So if we get to the second slide, oh, by the way, did Israel even see that he was featured as the, no, he didn't even see, okay. We're going to start with a quiz where I'm going to show you a series of scriptures and then I want you to answer the question that when we take the scripture from the Bible and we apply it in our lives, um, I'm going to try to highlight the two ways of reading the Bible by saying if you think that you just take the particular passage and cut it and paste it as is into your life, you'll put a C in your own mind, and then if you... uh, if, if it needs just a few more nuances, if you've got to take a principle from that passage and, and then apply the principle to your life, you'll put, you'll put a P. Is that clear or, or vague? Clear as mud? Yeah, some people are saying, what about a third option that says none of the above? Uh, well, we're going to keep this one really simple. So you might understand a little bit better as we go forward, all right? So you don't have to have a piece of paper and a pencil. You might, I'm going to put all this online later, so like if this is a fun group discussion issue, then you can find all this online later. But the first scripture, Genesis one twenty eight: be fruitful and increase in number. So in your hearts, answer the question, do you just cut and paste that into your life? Boom. So if you don't have children, are you disobeying? If you're single, are you disobeying? Or is there a principle at work here? Second one. 1 Corinthians 7.27, are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. Cut and paste into your life, or is there enduring principle at work here when it comes to application? Well, let's pretend it's a quiz instead of a survey. Uh, third one, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What do you think? You cut it and paste it, or is there, is there a deeper principle at work? Feel free to just yell out loud. It's fine. Fourth one, Deuteronomy 26, 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. What do you think? Cut and paste or principle? Fifth one, 1 Corinthians 16, 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Cut and paste. Have we been sinning by the lack of salivary exchange this morning? Number six, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, women should remain silent in the churches, cut and paste, or principle? That's not an option. Number seven, I'm pressing on, 1 Timothy 5, 23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine. Cut and paste or enduring principle. I love it. Number eight. Keep talking, I like this. Number eight, Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-eight, and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, it almost sounds like if it just happens to happen, doesn't it? 
If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman. Notice how all the laughter is sucked out of the room. It is, it's been a serious topic, but now we're realizing it's a serious topic. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her, and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. Cut and paste? Enduring principle. Number nine, Leviticus 19.19, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Yeah. And even if you're Jacob, and I asked Jacob in my office last week what kind of material his shirt was, and his real response out of his own mouth for real was, clothy. (laughs) Some kind of clothy. (laughs) Number 10, John 13, 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash each other's feet. Cut and paste, enduring principle. Number 11, Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. I, lo- I love this. It's funny how like, like for most of us, as we hear these, and I am asking this question, instead of going through like consistent principles of interpretation, we're kind of just answering by what we want it to be. <laughs> oh, this one's definitely a principle. And that horrible holy kiss one. Um, It's a trick question. Next one. um, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Give beer to those who are perishing. Wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Cut and paste. Principle. That's right there in your Bible. So what are you going to do with it, right? Which number are we on? I forget. Number, no, yeah, that was 12. 13. 1 Peter 2.18, Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Cut and paste. Enduring principle. Can you feel the emotion? Like in the room? I can feel it. Okay. Next one. 1 Timothy 2.9. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair. Is there anyone with braided hair this morning? Oh, snap! We got braided hair up in here. Um... And (laughs) not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Cut and paste, enduring principle. And, And last one, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Cut and paste, enduring principle. I I only limited it to 15 because... There's a huge, there's a huge Bible. True, a true quiz goes to 20. All right, next slide. 
I'm, I'm presenting you two dominant ways of reading the Bible. The first one I'm calling biblicism, all right? Can you say biblicism with me? Biblicism. Biblicism is the idea that you simply cut and paste the Bible out of the, out of the pages and into your life. A good summary of what biblicism is is this. I just do what the Bible says. I just do what the Bible says, Okay? You might think that biblicism is the most faithful way to approach the Bible, but actually it's not. Here's why. Sometimes when you simply cut and paste a text out of the Bible into your life, you happen to be fulfilling the spirit of that text just by doing what it says, how it says it. You just fulf- you're fulfilling the spirit of the text. But other times, if you simply cut it and paste it into your life, you will be violating the reason it's even in the book in the first place. Boom. And I'll give you examples to back that up because I'm not crazy. So sometimes it works beautifully, fulfilling the reason for the text, and other times it fails miserably, especially when the passage is applied in a situation that's entirely different from the one for which it was given. So the second way, and first one is biblicism, the second way to read your Bible or interpret your Bible is called a redemptive spirit. Hermeneutic. Maybe you want to call it the spirit of the text. If you want to call the last one the letter of the text, you could call this one the spirit of the text. But my big words, because they're more accurate, is the redemptive spirit hermeneutic. The, if, if just, I just do what the Bible says is biblicism, then this one is understand why and apply the why. That's my hermeneutic. This method views scripture as having a husk the exact words, and a kernel, which is God's heart behind those words. The husk is the words, the kernel is the redemptive spirit. The spirit of the text, the why, I believe is the single most important aspect of scripture that we can wrestle, end of sentence preposition, with. This is where we drill down into the Bible and find the gold. The why is where we find God's and encounter God's heart. The why is where we encounter God's character. The why is where we see his wisdom working in history for his good purposes. This is where we, where we find ourselves moved to, oh my word, you're beautiful, as we study scripture. My argument in this whole sermon is one extended argument that the redemptive spirit hermeneutic is the right way to read your Bible, and that biblicism is unhelpful. Let me give you two Old Old Testament examples. The first one is the one we already referred to in the quiz that had to do with rape. So next slide. Two Old Testament examples. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29. I'll read it again. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. Okay, so this is the rape law of marriage. And in context, if you are hearing this against the grain of the ancient culture in which it came, it was meant as a protection and a major step forward for women. Because a woman who was raped in ancient culture had, first off, a woman had less rights in non, not non-Hebrew Bible, we're talking about like the surrounding cultures at the time. If a man's wife was raped, do you know what like the surrounding culture's rules said? That justice entails raping the other guy's wife. 
because they weren't even thinking about the female as having rights. They were thinking this husband was wronged, so the only way to, to pay back the wrong is to wrong the other husband the same way, by raping his wife. So if you take Hebrew Old Testament command here, you see that unlike the surrounding nations, she's trying to be, God's moving the culture forward for protecting her, because now she's, quote, damaged goods in that culture, no one would marry her. So now what's she going to do? And God's saying, not only do you have to marry her, but you can never divorce her. Now, we, we, listen, you need to hear this. The reason that we are recoiling against this passage when we're hearing it this morning is because our culture is far different from the culture in which this passage came. When this passage came, it was redemptive and moving the ball forward. But our culture, being far superior ethically to the culture in which this scripture came, would be moving backwards if we applied it literally. The reason it feels wrong is because it would actually be wrong. It would be moving in the wrong direction, against the grain of the spirit of the text. So our instinctive offense reveals how far removed we are from, this, from the culture, from the original audience uh, that this scripture came to. Second example, Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16. I'm thirsty and my throat itches. Thank you, Carl. Second example. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he, that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Specifically in context, this is talking about slaves that escape from surrounding nations that find their way to Israel. And God says, don't you dare send them back. If they ran away, their situation was probably something worth running away from. You'd be sending them back to something really damaging. So don't send them back. So the entire nation, you rock, the entire nation of Israel functions as a refuge for runaway slaves. Now, relative to surrounding cultures, this is a major, major step forward. But how many of you recognize that if we were trying to cut and paste this into our lives, we would have to reset up, we would have to reintroduce the very institution of slavery in order to fulfill this text? Would that be a move toward the justice that's in the heart of this text or a move away from the justice? So both of these examples, I think, clearly reveal that the spirit of the text is the most important aspect of the text and that to apply the letter of the text out of context is to violate the heart of the text. Are we clear? All right. So now is where I give you a little bit more, some vocabulary terms. Next slide. Progressive revelation. You might recognize that God reveals himself by stages in the Bible. He, as a master teacher, starts with humanity where God finds us, and then he moves us along by stages um, over time, over generations. So the basic building blocks come first, and then later the higher principles. So what God said at one time in history is not necessarily what God ultimately wants to say. I feel like I want to say that again. What God said at one time in history is not necessarily what God ultimately wants to say. For example, in some passages in the Old Testament, you have the idea that there are many gods. 
Like in Deuteronomy where it says, God apportioned the nations of the world to all the other gods, but Israel he kept for his own special possession. Then later we realize through Isaiah the prophet, there is only one God. And then the New Testament later on reveals that these so-called gods are actually fallen demons. Interesting stuff. Progressive revelation. Like in basic math, the teacher might say, Johnny, you cannot subtract larger numbers from smaller numbers, but then a few years later, your teacher says, today we're going to talk about negative numbers. (laughs) Is that a contradiction? No, it's giving the student what they were ready for, and then once they have that down, building on that and moving forward. So that's progressive. Well, yes, it technically would, you could construe it as a contradiction, but it's just good teaching. Uh, The next concept, besides progressive revelation, next slide, would be accommodation. And anyone who's ever crossed a culture for the name Jesus has bounced face-to-face with this reality of accommodation. For example, Joe and Gloria Bontrager uh, have worked closely with, for many years, cultures that practice polygamy. Now we're not talking about thousands of years ago. We're talking about right now. So what do you do when you're leading a tribe of wonderful people to Jesus and the husband has three wives and children with all of them? Do you say divorce those two and disown those children or what, how does that work? And the way that they've worked with it is they accept them into the church and because it's the best thing that you could, the worst thing you could do is to try to have them disowning these wives and these kids. And the most redemptive way forward is to accommodate to something that is not ideal. And bless you. Similar accommodations happen right in your Bible, on the pages of your Bible. And you just right away, you can say, oh, that, that's, yeah, God does that all the time when he deals with humans in history. It's simply a part of their culture. Now, just because God's accommodating to it doesn't mean it's what he wants, does it? And a biblicist approach to scripture takes this into account and asks questions like, how is God as a missionary accommodating and what aspects of this text are cultural accommodations and what aspects of these texts are redemptive spirit moving forward? These are the kind of questions that a redemptive spirit hermeneutic will have to ask and answer or at least try. But Biblicism doesn't even have to work on these things. But of course, my argument is that it's not ultimately the most reverent or faithful way of approaching your Bible. Okay, so a Biblicist approach takes scriptures that contain missionary accommodations on God's part and doesn't even know that. It just views the letter of those laws as permanent, absolute standards for all time. All right, next slide. How Jesus interpreted the Bible. Jesus interpreted the Bible very differently than the religious uh, establishment of his day. The Jews of his day were focused on establishing the exact words of the Bible and then doing the exact words of the Bible. He, on the other hand, was about digging very deeply into the spirit of, that, of the command or the, or the intention, the deep heart of God revealed in the scriptures. Here, let me give you two examples. First one would be marriage. Um, Moses said to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day said, well, I'm, I'm obeying the Bible. I'm cutting and pasting the Bible into my life. I'm being faithful. And Jesus said, actually, you're wicked 
Because even though God allowed divorce, this is Matthew um, 19, even though God allowed divorce, his heart is elsewhere. Namely, in the permanence of marriage. And that comes from Jesus rec- like meditating deeply on that permission of divorce and saying, now I see why, why God allowed this. Your hearts are so hard. And since your hearts are so hard, that for you to stay married and beat this woman, stay married and abuse this woman, stay married and not even love this woman, I'm going to allow this to protect these women. And to give them legal standing to be able to, to remarry someone who will fulfill my original intention for marriage. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating. So they were saying, we're following God, we're doing the Bible. And he said, you're doing the Bible, but you're missing the point of the Bible. You're missing the spirit of the text. That's the first example. We need to go way, way deeper. In other words, it's possible to obey the letter of the Bible and completely miss it. We got to go so much deeper. By the way, incidentally, this is why, this is part of why, part of why Jesus got killed. Jesus got killed because they could point all these little areas out where they felt he was a sinner, a lawbreaker, a heretic, a false teacher, a false prophet, a Bible breaker. You know, okay, modern, we would call him a liberal, straight up. That's, that would be our label for him. Because as soon as we label people, we don't have to deal with them anymore. For real. It's, it's simple, simple. I don't have to deal with you, your argument, what's driving you, who you really are. I, as soon as I just put a label on you, you're done. You know, you're not a human anymore and I'm allowed to resent you and fight against you. Anyway, next one, Sabbath. Uh, next slide, actually. This will be a pretty picture. You remember how Jesus was constantly dogged by churchy folk who accused him of breaking Sabbath by healing folk on Saturday? I mean, it's cartoon day. It seems like the perfect day to heal people. But anyway, they were literalists, and he was a spirit of the law guy. He healed on the Sabbath because he had meditated deeply on the purpose of the Sabbath and concluded that it's a perfect day to restore someone to a state of rest. And they said, he's working. We should pick up stones to kill him. Are you with me? So by his way of thinking, he's fulfilling the reason for Sabbath law, but by their way of thinking, he's violating the scripture. The so-called conservatives all around the room gnashed their teeth at him for violating God's commands, while in reality, he was fulfilling their deepest meaning. One time his disciples were walking through a field, actually he was walking through a field with his disciples, and they were hungry, so they happened to be just picking heads of grain as they walked through, rubbing them together, blowing off the husks and chewing them, eating them. And then the people who are always there watching, there's always people whose purpose in coming is not to learn, not to grow, not to find more Jesus, but to equip themselves to take you down. Ugh. Okay. And they say, why are you letting your disciples do this? You're violating Sabbath. And he pushes back and says, 
You remember the time David and his men went into the temple and they ate the bread of the presence that was unlawful for them to eat, but only for the priests? You remember that? And then he says, man doesn't exist for the Sabbath. Sabbath exists for man. And then most of us say, well, he's Jesus. He can do what he wants. Instead of learning from Jesus how to read your Bible. Deeply. Next one, Paul. Paul must have learned from Jesus. Next slide, yeah. Isn't he pretty? Got a nice beard and a little baldness. Seems familiar. Get him some glasses. Um, I need some robes like that. You know what I'm saying? No, not amen. I was kidding. According to Paul, if you read, if you read like Romans 7, 1 through 6, it basically says that as long as you're married to someone, you're bound by the law of marriage as long as you live. But if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. And then he says this, Jesus died, and when he died, we died in him. So now we're free from the law. We were married to the law, says Paul, and now that we died in the cross, we're free to remarry, namely we're free to marry Jesus. And then he ends verse 6 of Romans 7 by saying, so now we are no longer, we no longer are in the written law, but now we are in the spirit. We live by the spirit. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Christians are not ruled by cut and pasted Bible verses. We're ruled by the God who gave us them. We're walking with the God who gave us them. It's really a big deal for Paul, the idea that when love comes inside of you, you don't need laws anymore. Because the only reason for the book was because we were disconnected from the source. And so we needed it to temporarily, until Jesus came, give us a set of things where someone smarter than us worked out kind of how this works. But if Jesus comes and lives inside of you, now you'll fulfill the spirit in which all those laws were given without ever being married to that, that the text. Anyway, it doesn't mean we don't read the book. It means we're not under it. We're connected to Jesus. I think Paul got these kinds of insights by meditating on Jesus and how Jesus related to the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of Paul and the way he reads the book. Uh, muzzled ox one. That's a pretty crude muzzle. Paul told Timothy that the elders whose work is preaching and teaching ought to be financially compensated. Where's that in the Bible, right? You ought to pay your preacher. Well, where's that in the Bible, Paul? And he says, easy. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. This is 1 Timothy 5, 18, I'm summarizing. Easy. Here's where it is in the Bible. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. It's right there. And, and uh, then he says, do you think God said this because he actually cares about oxes? Oxen? Ox? This is the kind of rabbit trail we get all locked up in. You think God actually cares about that animal? Paul says, no, he wrote that for preachers. And then we say, "Uh, wow, Paul, wow. Um, I mean, I guess that could be like a really loose tangential application of the passage, but like for sure, Paul, I would not say that's why that passage is in the Bible. 
And then he would say, amateur. And walk away. And, like, we, and then we would say, wait, come back, Paul. Dude, for, for real, like for 500 years, we could have read that verse and never saw that connection. Why? Because we need to do a way better job paying attention to the spirit of the text. When I do this, it, 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 it really helps. So the question is, is Paul, are Paul and Jesus taking liberties with the text to try to get away with something they want to get away with? Because I promise you that's what the accusers in their culture and in their context, in their churches, said about them. Are you take, he's just taking liberties with the text to get away with what he wants to get away with, y'all. No, no. He's taking the text in his hands and getting on his knees and pleading with God to reveal your heart to me, Papa. Reveal your heart to me. I want to be faithful. Next one, the mission. The mission is ultimate. We kind of know this. This is what this drove Paul, but this also drove Jesus. And more importantly, this drove God throughout all human history. Becoming all things to all people so that by all possible, possible means I might save some. This is that accommodation thing I was talking about where God meets us where we are to connect with us in relationship to then take us the next step of the journey. We become all things for all people to reach Jesus. So the perennial question for us believers, followers of Jesus is how do we best reach this culture with the gospel? Now we never want to compromise in such a way that like displeases the Lord or misrepresents the Lord. But the apostles, in their time and place, they were trying to present a vision of what it looks like to follow Jesus that would be attractive to the surrounding culture. They were trying to put their best foot forward as missionaries. So sometimes the New Testament authors, I hope you can hear this, Sometimes the New Testament authors accommodated to their culture just like God did in the Old Testament. Do you need examples? Titus 2, 9 and 10. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal but they must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then, listen, listen, I need you to listen. I need your faces on my face. Then they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. Do you think this is written to endorse the institution of slavery? No, we're accommodating to the institution of slavery. Why? Because people matter. Slave owners matter. Slaves matter. So we're, in, we're accommodating this structure, but we're infusing it with the love of Jesus. We're filling it with the sacrificial, self-giving, other-centered love of Jesus so that if it's done rightly, connection and relationship with Jesus can be formed. But we would be completely on crack to think that somehow God's endorsing slavery. This is a missionary God accommodating the culture but filling it with the spirit of Jesus. Are you with me? These are called household codes. And you find these all over your New Testament. This is how slaves behave. This is how children behave. This is how husbands and wives behave. 
And all over the place, you have it smattered with this idea of to make gospel attractive. The household codes of how masters treat slaves and how slaves were supposed to serve masters involve, I'm just repeating myself, an element of accommodation to sinful culture and are not, therefore, not a perfect expression of God's will. And within the accommodation is the redemptive spirit of the text, namely the imperative to fill that form with the love of Jesus, which is a perfect expression of God's will. In other words, the love is what makes that Christian, not slavery. Let me give you another example from the exact same passage in Titus 2. Again, this involves sacrificial love and accommodation for the sake of the mission. Ready for it? This is Titus 2, 5. Young women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, accommodation to culture filled with the love of Jesus. Next slide, stumbling blocks. The culture of this, the Apostles' Day was intensely patriarchal. And anything that would undermine the assumptions of men being in charge would have been a major stumbling block to the culture in the first century. The male-female roles, the power differential in those roles expressed in the pages of your New Testament are in many ways an accommodation to sinful culture in order to make the gospel as attractive as possible while infusing those structures with as much of the beautiful, sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus as we possibly can. Now, I'm not arguing that there are not beautiful and timeless truths about husband's headship or gender differences in these passages. I'm not trying to flatten them out But what I am saying is that the cultural assumptions about husbands having the power and wives having none are not the redemptive spirit of Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 or Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Serving each other in love are. To put it another way, men in charge is not what makes a marriage Christian. Sacrificial, Christ-exalting, other-centered love is what makes a marriage Christian. Next slide. Throughout history, Jesus has always been moving the ball up the field in the trajectory of the end zone. In every generation, he moves things as far as the culture of the day can bear without unduly harming the spread of the gospel. If you remember how I started with the examples of the rape law and the runaway slave laws, you may have connected the dots by now. Relative to the original situation, those commands were redemptive but applied in a cut-and-paste way to our lives without reference to their spirit and context is pulling in the wrong direction, losing 
losing precious ground the Lord through the church has gained. Next slide. I want you to hear how differently these passages land on us than how they landed on their original audiences. For example, when you read Ephesians 5 to us, you know how it lands? We stumble over, wives submit to husbands. They stumbled over, husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church. We stumble over, a woman should learn in quietness and submission. They, and I'm not kidding, stumbled over, a woman should learn. The very same text of scripture that land on us as sexist landed on the original target audiences as nearly feminist. And we don't even hear it. I'm going to finish. Final slide, pastoral concern. The Bible's a little bit like music. You know, I recently encountered a musician named Jacob Collier, and he's out of control. I love him so much. And you could hear a Jacob Collier with his polyrhythms and his, oh man, his circle of fifths and his bright and dark harmonies and his negative harmonies and his, oh, plagal cadence, plagal cadence, plagal cadence, resolve. And I'm like, I don't even know the words coming out of your mouth, but I like the sounds. And I could hear Jacob and, I, and say, what's even the point? I quit. Or I could just let it fuel my love for making music from wherever I am. In other words, Mozart and people like that doesn't negate the value of brown-eyed girl and hey Jude. Any believer with the Holy Spirit can pick up their Bible and understand something true from God for their life today. But... But that doesn't mean you're going to open your Bible and understand everything. But the point of your Bible is to know God, isn't it? Not to understand everything, but to know God today. And I don't want anything that I've said here today to make you say, man, I've got to have all these cultural tools before I can rightly understand these texts. No, the cultural tools are extremely helpful. Study and research is really helpful. If anything, the point of what I'm trying to say is let's pay closer attention to these texts. Let's read them more deeply. Let's prayerfully invite the Holy Spirit to reveal the why behind the what so that we can please him successfully. Some people, I mean, as soon as I preached my last sermon, someone put on Facebook that I was obviously an apostate and everyone should run for the hills. Because their whole argument was His whole sermon on 1 Timothy 2 was to try to take Scripture and make it fit his theology instead of listen to what Scripture had to say. And the whole point of what I was trying to say was if you understand the context in which Paul was speaking, you'll understand that he's not sexist. And there are enduring principles from this text that need to be faithfully applied if we're going to treat it as the Bible instead of just ignore it. It's your Bible, though. It doesn't belong. It's not the exclusive property of scholars and seminaries and denominational leaders dead Anabaptists or Baptists or Catholics, they're not here. You are. And you have a response. God wants this Bible to have a relationship with you just like his spirit has a relationship with you. For you to farm out beliefs to some doctrinal statement or some denomination or pastor because you don't want to do the hard work of like wrestling with the text and saying, God, change me, God, shape me, God, teach me. That's not helpful. That is not helpful. But if we're reading scripture correctly, then it's good news. 
these passages that landed on us as bad news, I tried to frame them in their cultural context so that you could hear that when they came, they were good news. If we're reading it correctly, it's good news. And if we're reading it correctly, it leads to a life of love. And if it doesn't, if it's not good news and it doesn't lead to a life of of love, we're missing something. Not it. We are. Amen. Go ahead and stand. May the Lord grant you wisdom and insight and understanding. May the Lord grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. Amen. 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 Go in peace.